0: Okay, so we're in a series called Transforming Grace. I'm going to tell you the story that probably is one of the most popular and familiar stories in the Bible. But I just think the impact of this story is absolutely amazing. So Transforming Grace, grace is about God's unmerited favour to us. Uh, And the key thing is, is it's unmerited. You don't earn it, you can't do good to to get it. It's God's unmerited favour towards us. It's God's unfailing love that transforms us. And, And it's so easy to think that actually, uh, re- that the religion, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, you know that religion, doing the kind of stuff of Christianity, or doing the stuff of church or faith, is the thing that transforms. Those things are secondary. What really transforms us is, is God's unmerited favour towards us. So I'm going to look at this familiar story. It's the prodigal son. You probably thought, oh, switch off, I've heard this. But every time I talk about this story, I find something fresh in it, and I hope you will today. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to go to work Father. We thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you that none of us have earned our position as your sons and daughters. There's none of us good enough. None of us have acted or behaved the right way. None of us have climbed the ladder of rule keeping so that you love us. I thank you, Lord, that you've stepped down in your love and mercy and come and found us. Grace and mercy found us. But we pray, let that truth transform the way we live. Let it empower us to be different in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So Luke 15, just to give you the context, in in Luke there's three parables, we're not going to do all of them, but it starts with this little interesting uh, comment, Luke 15 verse 1. It says, Now the despised tax collectors and sinners were gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we've got two, cr- two groups here. You've got a group of people who, who, who the Bible calls the tax collectors. Now you've got to understand tax collectors, basically they're like collaborators if you think about war. Or if you think about the global crash, they're bankers. Sorry if you're a banker, but actually you must be say, oh, you're a banker, you're a bad person. So they're those kind of people. And then they're just the general bunch of them called sinners. We're gathering round to hear Jesus. And then you've got the, the religious types, the Pharisees, those who felt like the way to, to, attain, uh, to earn favour with God was to work through all these rules, keeping the rules, keeping the rules. And the more rules you kept, the better you felt about yourself, the, the more you felt you looked down on other people. And the more, and they were like shocked. What is Jesus doing? Welcoming sinners and even eating with them you've got to understand that eating in that context the way, when you welcome somebody in a Middle Eastern context when, time, when Jesus was talking that to eat with them was to, to extend shalom extend God's peace and say, "Come and share life with me that's why we like to eat a lot together I know you think it's because I've got uh, you know 've got problems with my shirts and stuff like that that you know we just like to eat but actually no, we like to eat because eating is a way of saying you are welcome and they're shocked by this and Jesus tells three parables one he tells about a lost sheep, a coin, one he tells about a lost uh, uh, sheep, and this one is about the lost son. But let me. But before we run into this, this one is by Tim Keller. it's called The Prodigal God. Who's seen this book? Great, great book. Really great book. This is more of a secret one that preachers keep down their back, but I thought I'd be mean, to be honest with you. It's called The Cross and the Cro- Prodigal by Ken Bailey. The Cross and the Prodigal by Ken Bailey. Two great books, and you'll see their names at the bottom of lots of quotes because they're brilliant. Tim Keller says this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious, whilst offending the religious people of his day. However, in the main, says Keller, our churches today do not have that effect. The kind of people Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even the coolest ones. And we, we, we try and be cool here. And we try and be contemporary. But we tend to draw, see if this is you, Safe, buttoned-down, moralistic types. The broken and marginal avoid church, says Keller. That can only mean one thing. If our preaching and our people do not have the same effect on people that Jesus did, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. And I think I talk to people and think, people have got a misunderstanding about what the truth of the Bible is all about. And that's why they don't want to go to church. They think, well, why would I want to go and sit with a load of self-righteous rule keepers who all feel like they're better than you and looking down on me, why would I want to be with them? Because so the message of grace is so important because if we don't preach grace and we don't live grace and we don't tell praise, sh- shout it from every mountaintop as the song said, then we're going to fill this room with nice, moralistic, button down people like you and me. Big challenge. So let's read into the story. The first thing, it starts with a death wish. Luke 15, verse 10. Uh, then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between his sons. That, that word estate, they, they don't really know how to translate it, but actually it, it's the word bios from where we, where we get biology and what it means is it's like the living. And I know that sometimes if, if you meet Tweedy types in the Cotswolds, they can talk about you know, their, their big uh, sweeping property as the living. You know, It's their living. The land was their living. You've got to understand in, in Middle Eastern context that you were totally identified with your land. You had this bit of land, in this village, and you are identified with your family and your land. And so in one sense, it wasn't just like this was their job, this was their identity, uh, and, and so what he says is divide up your living. Divide up your life. I, I want a slice of your life. I'd like you to take your life, and I'd like you to put it on the market, and I want a slice of it. I'd, he would, the, we're assuming there's two sons, the older brother would get two-thirds, the younger brother get one-third, And so what would happen is the son is basically saying, I'd like you to liquidate your assets. I'd like you to liquidate your life. The younger son has got a grasping hand. He's saying, I want what's yours. He's almost saying, I wish you were dead. I want what's yours. And he's saying it to his father's face, saying, tear your life apart so that I can have my piece of it. I think it's really interesting that that we tend to forget that, that in Middle Eastern context that, that this is an honour and shame culture in the Middle East. In other words, honour is hugely important. How you treated people that were older than you, how you treated people in authority was hugely significant. Now obviously we haven't got that in this church, you know, I'm in authority, is there an honour and shame culture? Yes, you like to shame me. No, <laughs> there's not an honour and shame culture, we don't feel that. We, we live in this guilt and righteousness culture. Am I guilty? Am I righteous? That's how, we, that's how we work about what's right and wrong. But in the Middle East, it's honour and shame. So for a son to say to his father, I wish you were dead, is absolutely shocking. I mean, it's shocking in our culture. If your kid said to you, I wish you were dead, that would be really shocking. But in, in the Middle Eastern culture, it's basically like the worst thing you can say. It's like, I dishonour you. All that you are, I am not interested in. I do not want this. I just want my bit that's coming to me. The younger brother is impatient, uh, says Ken Bailey, for his father's death. The son hasn't broken a law, actually, by asking for his, uh, his inheritance, because as the fathers would get older, what they would do is the father would own the property, but he would give... Uh, the father would have the rights of the property, but would give it to the sons to manage. We often do that these days. You sign this kind of right of attorney. We'd have the so he's not broken a law, says Ken Bailey. He's broken his father's heart. The youngest son rejects his identity and security as his father's son. He would have been known as the son of this man, the son of this father who lived in this land and farmed in this land and this village, and he's basically saying, all that I am, I totally reject. Everything that's come to me, that shapes me, I I reject. I want to create my own identity. It's interesting, just before we finish Ken Bailey's quote, that actually, that's massive. We're talking about that on our 321 course that we've been running on a Thursday night. The the desire for self-expression trumps everything these days. The fact that I want to live my life, my way, Doing my things trumps everything these days. And when that comes face-to-face with with the Bible, or when that comes face-to-face with the Gospel, it's really, really difficult. We find it really hard because we want to say, in theory, I trust, if you're a Christian, I trust what the Bible says. But actually, our culture is saying, no, what you want and how you want to express yourself is primary. Does that relate to you? Can you you understand that? And the younger you are, the more self-expression, whether that's sexually, financially, experientially, self-expression is everything. And the, the, the younger son says... I reject who I am because I want to express myself. Self-expression is everything. Uh, uh, Ken Bailey says he wants the Father's things, but not the Father. He orphans himself. You know, the the horrible tragedy of of, of being without a Father, of of being orphaned is terrible, but he actually has a Father and he says, I reject that, I, I orphan myself, I'm not interested in you. And it's interesting. That's the nature of humanity. Humanity. We've orphaned ourselves. You know, if you read right at the beginning of the Bible, and we've done this on the on the three, two, one course, and I'm sure you've read it before. Right at the beginning of the Bible, that humanity says, "I reject my identity as your son, and I'm not after you. I want your stuff." And I'm orphaning myself. This is what it says in Genesis 3. You will certainly not die, said the serpent, for God knows when you eat of the tree from it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, discerning or deciding or shaping what's good and evil. She grasped the fruit of the tree and ate it and gave it to her husband with her. Right in there in that story, there's this desire for self-determination, this desire, I want God's stuff, the good world that he's made, but I don't want him. You know, was it Nietzsche who said, God is dead. We want God dead. Because we want his world, but we don't want him. How is a Middle Eastern father going to react to this? How would you react if your kids said to you, or if you ever said to your parents, how did they react? I wish you were dead. You'd be furious. happened once in our family, and I was furious. does the father react? It's inconceivable that the father would grant that request. I wish you were dead. Now sell your house. Give me my share. How would you react to that? Not even an honour and shame culture you'd find that difficult. But the father grants his request. The gracious father grants his son request. No Middle Eastern village father would do that. The expected reaction would be, he would punish his son. How dare you come here? How dare you? How dare you? Ken Bailey says, remarkably, God grants us freedom even to reject his love. You know, why are we not punished? Why are we not punished? Remarkably, God, in his grace, grants us freedom, even to reject his love. Yet the father never disowned his son. What does he do? He suffers the shame. The whole village would have known that the younger son, the cheeky, upstart, dishonourable younger son, i said, I wish you were dead, sell your property. Why would they have known? Because the house for sale, the farm for sale time would have gone up because he wants to turn the house and the farm into cash. He wouldn't have got a good price for it. The whole village would be shocked. How is this happening? But the father suffers the shame of that. He doesn't punish his son in that moment. He suffers the shame of that, because he wants to keep the door open for reconciliation with his son. Now, where's the, he's got an older brother in this. And again, Ken Bailey's brilliantly helpful in, in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal. He says, everyone in the village would have been asking, why doesn't the older brother mediate on the father's behalf? Say mediate. mediate. What does it mean? It means, I'm going to step between two parties. Here's the father offended. Here's the offensive son. I'm the, young, I'm the older brother. I'm going to mediate. I'm going to come and say, now, brother, really, are you sure this is not the... Father, could you, could you forgive him? He, he would mediate. Everybody was expecting the, 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 the son to mediate on his behalf because the family name was everything. The honour and glory of that family was everything. But the, fun, the, fun, the, the oldest, older brother, silent... We don't read that because we don't understand it in our culture. But they would have said, where's the older brother? And why is he not mediating on behalf of the father? The older brother has no regard for his father's heart, just like his younger brother. And he's no regard for his father's honor. Story moves on, Luke 15, uh, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. In other words, he turned it into cash set off for a distant country, and there squandered squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's in a far-off country. He's clearly in a country that's not a Jewish country. How do we know that? Those pigs. Yeah? And I think that he goes and and hires himself out to this guy and says, look, can I work on your farm? And he thinks, I don't want this guy. I'll just put him with the pigs. Because he thinks he'll just reject the job. He starts off with loads of money. I suspect he spends his money on buying friends. It's easy to have friends if you've got lots of money. Everyone wants to be your friend. No one challenges you about your life if you've got lots of money. Everyone wants to be your friend. But if your money runs out, the very people that might have enjoyed your hospitality say, just feed the pigs. The son's self expression has left him nowhere. I, I, I've put in one of my headings: self-expression as a soul, false promise. I could have put sin has got a false promise. Self-expression promises if you have everything, if you have money and wealth and fun and pleasure, you will be happy. That's the promise, but it's a false promise. We went on a walk on Friday, Naomi and I, uh, around a place called Goring. I know I keep quoting this guy, George Michael, but we went past his house. His house where he used to live, where his body was found. And it was in the papers this week. I don't read those kind of papers. It was on the front page of a paper, And it said, you know, that George Michael wanted to die. His house is huge. He had so much money and fame, and I love his music in many ways. But his self-expression left him empty. The younger son squanders the life of his father. The son is enslaved to a foreign master. The son's grasping has left him empty empty. The son actually becomes a beggar. How do we know that? Because he says nobody gave him everything. He obviously wants to eat the pig food and he said, somebody give me something. Nobody gave him anything. The son is slowly starving to death. Now, we might not think of that as a picture of sin, but that's what sin does. Sin takes what God gave you and what God made you and God created you and it squanders it and you end up enslaved, you end up grasping but empty, you end up beggarly, please give me something to fulfil me and satisfy me. But the truth is we're all slowly starving to death. Away from the bios, away from the life of God, we are all slowly starving. Starving to death. Let's carry on. It says, When he came to his senses, the son says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now I used to read that and think, Actually, he's kind of got half there, hasn't he? You know he's recognised I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I feel like he's got half there, and then he thinks the answer is well the way to get back with his father is I'll be a hired servant. I'll work my way back, and I think there's some truth in that. But I think it's interesting as I was reading again in one of these books, actually those verses you got uh, those words I I've sinned against you and against the Lord, actually they come out of Pharaoh's mouth. They come out of Pharaoh's mouth. If you read Genesis 10, 16, do we think that Pharaoh, when he was holding Israelites in slavery, was really repentant? We did a series on it, so if you were around, the answer is no. Why does Jesus, because it's Jesus telling the story, it's not a real story, Jesus. why does he put those words in his mouth? Everybody would have been familiar with that story. You know, it's not like there's stout You know, I've said this often. There's not like there's thousands and thousands and thousands of information and blog out there, and you, nobody can remember anything. I read stuff, I think that's really helpful, and then I forget it. They had very little to read. Probably the Bible was about all they had. They would have known the story, and they'd have go, "I've heard that before." Why does he put that in his mouth? I think the reality is because the son saw repentance, saying I'm sorry to his father, saying the right words to his father, was a really just a way to get back in to the place where he could earn a living. He says, the hired hands have got more food than me. I'll be a hired hand. He's only interested in himself. And I thought about this and I thought, "I, I can do this. You can do this. We can easily repent. We can easily say, God, I'm sorry... But really what we want is the consequences of our stupid self-expression and decision-making to be wiped away. You know, that, Isn't that what happens? When people get found out for corruption, for, you know, for abuse, for sexual immorality, when politicians get find out, found out, they're very quick to say sorry, but I don't think they're really sorry. What they're sorry is they're sorry they got found out. And I think there's an element here Whereas Ken Bailey says, the son wants the benefits of the father's house, but not the father's house. We can do that as Christians. We can come to the front, if there's a call for something, we can say, God, I'm sorry. We can feel bad about what we've done, the decision, God, I'm sorry. But even in that, we just want everyone to forget what happened and to treat us differently. We want our life to be remade, the foolishness of our mistakes to be remade. There's a different level to say, I want the father's heart. But there is an element in one sense, as I said, where he's he's got the right right diagnosis but the wrong cure. He thinks his father just wants him to get paid back. You know, he's taken all this money. He thinks, if I pay it back, if I become a worker, a servant, I work really hard, I'll pay back. I'll pay it back. Now, in one sense, we're all servants of God. Jesus is described as a servant. It's not wrong to be a servant, but the motivation of the servant is quite important. If you serve because you want people to know that you serve, or you want people to, to give you credit or give you money, then the motivation for your servants is just, I want to climb the ladder. But if you serve because you understand what God is like, what, that Christ is a servant, that's completely different service. So it sounds like he's asking for the right thing, doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying, I want to be a servant. Well, the great. who's greatest? The greatest of all will be the servant. I want to be a servant. But his motivation is, I, I still don't want God. I want to work for my salvation. I want to work my way back. I've made a mistake. I feel bad about the mistake, now I want to work for my salvation. Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. It's okay to serve, it's okay to make an effort to serve in God's kingdom, but if you're trying to do things to earn God's favour, you're not going to get there. It's called, I'm trusting myself, it's called self-justification. I want to work for myself, and we do it all the time. Why does the younger brother think that's the way it works? Because his older brothers will find out he's exactly like that. And why do people, a guy, an American guy called Charles Finney, said this? He said, when, Christ, when young people become Christians, they're full of faith and energy and they trust Jesus. He says, But as time goes on, they become cynical and miserable and finger pointing. And he said, Where have they learned that from? He says, they learn it from us. They've learned it from us. The older brothers in this story, who's we going to get to? Why does he think that's what his father wants? Because that's what his older brother is, thinks his father wants. But neither of them get that the father wants his heart. But the father is still gracious. Talking about grace, the father is still incredibly gracious. Luke twenty, Luke 15 verse 20, while he was still... This is one of the best verses in the Bible, isn't it? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw his son... And was moved with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. Boom! You've got to love the father in this story, even if you've heard the story before. You've got to love the father in this story, because what is he doing? He's kept the door open. The son's off doing whatever for how long? The father's looking out. The father's looking out. I, I don't know if he's got a high tower or a, a loft apartment, or, you know, as, but he's definitely looking out. He's, I don't know whether he's pacing to the end of the village, back and forth. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today. He's hoping the son is going to come back. He's hoping the son's going to come back. And then he does what no Middle Eastern father would do in an honour and shame culture. He picks up his, his robes and runs. Ken Bailey says this, the father's feet follow his heart, scorning the shame again. He humiliates himself before the village. Look, you're a dignified father. You don't run. He's not interested in what people think. He's running. He's running. This is the gracious, loving God who comes down. He's looking out for you. He's looking out for us. He comes down. He literally comes down, takes on flesh. That's what Christmas is all about, to find us. And whilst we are a long way off, he comes and gets us and embraces us and loves us. The father's shame, the son's shame, is hidden by the father's love. That moment when the father wraps his arms around him, it's hugely significant. It's not just, oh, isn't that nice? A reconciliation story. Roll the credits. Actually, what would have happened in a Middle Eastern village would they would have had this cutting-off ceremony. And if somebody would have left in bad sp- uh, spirit, they would have taken a, a port that has smashed a jar uh, as a way of saying, my relationship with you is smashed. Then the father never did that. But when the son came back, there was another moment where the father could have said, no way, Jose. No way, you getting back in. The, all you've done, I break the port, we're done. But the father welcomes him. The father welcomes him. The son goes into his little rehearsed routine, whether it's real or sham, we don't know. But he says, The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even let him finish. But the father said to him, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, kill, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He's lost. He was lost and his fans. so they began to celebrate. If you're a Christian, that's you. You didn't get in because you went to the right school, you got the best education, you come from a nice family... You live in a nice town. You came to church when you were a kid. You got in because the Father is full of grace to you and says, you don't deserve it, but still, I'm going to give you the best. I'm going I'm to put a ring on you. I'm going to put a robe on you. Takes off his filthy, smelly pig clothes, puts the best father robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet, and he basically says, you are welcomed back. You're dead, but not dead to him. Dead in sin, dead in self-expression, dead in a far-off country. But now you're alive again. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In love, God destined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's given us freely in Jesus, the one He loves. That's what becoming a Christian is. God decides to choose you even though you don't choose him, even though you wish he was dead, even though you don't like him, even though you're just going back to get the benefits maybe of whatever. The father's saying, I'm adopting you, I'm choosing you, I want you. The orphan son, says "Kelly is brought home and adopted to the scandal of the village. What is this father like? First he gets shamed by the son and sells all his stuff, and then the son comes back and he just doesn't even tell him off. He doesn't break the jar and says, we're done. He says, come on, come and eat with me. Only the grace of the Father is able to fully restore. Now, what are robes and ring? Let's just do that quickly, because we need to get this down. I, I, I thought, why does it... Jesus never wastes a word, by the way. Why does he say, afar far off? It's interesting. So it was, I thought, where does far off been said before or after? And I found this. This is when Jesus has died, rose from the dead, and Peter, his disciples, is telling the the people to believe in Jesus. Peter says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. There's an expectation in Peter's eyes that it wasn't just the Jews at the moment, but there'd be a far-off people, a you-and-me people, a far-off people. And we'd come and we'd, you know, God would take off our filthy rags and he'd clothe us, forgive us, clothe us in his righteousness. It talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in, in Ephesians. It talks about, it's like a ring put on the finger that says, you're adopted, you're adopted, you're mine, you're mine now. 25. Me- meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he, was, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. When he called one of the servants, he asked him, What is going on? The servant says, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him with peace. It's interesting, at that point you could think, well, the, younger, the older brother went, great, my brother's back. But he isn't, he, he's, he's not, he's not happy, is he? Because he, he, says, he says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he asked his father, look, all these years i have been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me anything, even a young goat, to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered his property with prostitutes, he just adds that for colour, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son said to the father, "You are always with me, and everything I have is yours." But we had to celebrate and be glad because this son of you, this brother of yours was dead, and is alive again, is lost and found. What do we find first about their older brother? And most of you here were probably younger brothers at some time or other. But if you've been in church a while, the danger is that you start to become older brothers. Let's look at the older brother and then we'll finish. First thing we see, the older brother's tight fist. The father's an open hand, the younger brother's got a grasping hand, the older brother's got a tight fist. For the older brother, the father's grace is not amazing, it's infuriating. Why is it infuriating? It's infuriating because if you've been working really, really hard to please the father, that he gets it for free is infuriating. Why does he get it for free when I've got to work? All these years I've had to work. Why does he get it for free? But actually, it's it's more than just that. It's actually he's going to get a bit of his money. You remember, a third went off and spent in a wild-off country. Two-thirds were with the son, which the son owns but the father has use of. And the father's basically taken the money, the fatted calf, he's taken the robe, he's taken everything that belongs to the son and says, I'm going to squander it on, the, I'm going to squander it on your brother. The father's estate belongs to the older brother. Every penny, every ring, and robe, and fattened calf. But he's unwilling to release his grip for his younger brother who's only worthy of his contempt. If you're a legalist, if you think the way to earn favour with God... You will always have a tight fist. It'll show in your bank account, it'll show in your diary, it'll show in your attitudes. You'll always have a tight fist. Because if you don't realize you've been forgiven for absolutely free, unmerited favour at the shame and humiliation of your father, you think, I owe, I've earned this. You know, I'm on the welcome team. I've been on four weeks running now. That Christopher Oppel sorted out. <laughs> we can do it so easily. I mean, that's probably just me. We tight-fisted is a sign. It's not a sign of wise stewardship. It's a sign of a tight heart. It's a sign of a graceless heart. It's a sign of a legalist heart. Then the second thing we find is he's self-righteous. Tim Keller again, pride in his good deeds and his self-salvation was keeping the older brother from salvation's feast. His problem is self-righteousness. The way he uses his moral record to put God and others in his debt to control them and do what he wants. His sense of self is based on his moral performance, which he must endlessly prop up by finger-pointing and fault-finding in others. It was not his obvious sin, but his pride in his good works that kept him from God. It's brilliant. He thinks, I am not going in if they're doing that. If that church is welcoming prostitutes and drug addicts and people that sleep on the street and poor people and messed up people and people not like me, I am not going to that church. We used to meet in Hester's Way and people used to say to me, I'd love to come to church, but I'm not coming to Hester's Way. It's just not appropriate. Oh, you're in the Parabla Art Centre. Oh, I'd love to come. It's so easy. Be, just uh, examine your heart. Are you self-righteous? Do you look around at this community and say, look at them. Do you know what they're like? Somebody really needs to speak to them. My word, really? You know, because I never do that. And when you're putting your money in the offering or standing order, you think, well, I'm, I'm definitely earning a place at the table now. Oh, you know, some people in this church don't give. It's not his obvious sin, but his pride in his good works that kept him from God. And the last thing about it all is entitlement. I find this massive with, 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 with Christians. Look, all these years, he says, I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. God, you never gave me nothing. What, this is happening to my family? I've been going to church all these years. What about that guy out on the road? Look at his language. I've been slaving for you. I'm only going to come one Sunday in four because I need some, you know, I mean, I'm slaving. This church is slaving you. What is it like? You know, you get these texts, these emails telling me to do this and that. What? <laughs> oh, there's one coming now. <laughs> no, he's attitude you, to his father, slaving <laughs> obedience to your orders. If you're a legalist, that's what Christian life is like, slaving obedience to his orders. Where's the feedback here? Where's the kickback? i come in a good first. I was here right at the very beginning when there's just 10 of you. Where's the fatted feast for me? And you're all over that new person at coffee time. You never speak to me. Lastly, the self righteous will not enter. The younger brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has filled the cat, fat, killed the fatted calf because he has received him with shalom. Remember at the beginning, the, the Pharisee was saying, you know what's the problem with Jesus? He's eating with these sinners. What's the problem with him? He's eating with sinners. Jesus puts it in the story, doesn't he? Uh, and by the way, the Father's eating with sinners. you want to know God? He's eating with sinners. Yeah. Oh, well, we, can't we just have great worship times? Just like, come Holy Spirit, let's just enjoy that. What about people out there who don't know Jesus. Well, it's a bit of a hassle. It is a bit of a hassle, that. You know, can we just do this? But what about, what about those sinners? And I'm not having them around. I have my friends, you know, let's keep it in the family. People don't know Jesus? No. Sorry, mum, really busy. The self-righteous will not enter. The older brother becomes angry and refuses to go in the feast. The older brother intentionally dishonours and publicly insults his father. To not come into the feast when you're invited by your father is a way of saying, I've got no time for you. It's just as bad as a younger brother. I've got no time for you. dishonours him. And the expected reaction, as we said before, would be punishment. But remarkably, as we said before, God grants freedom even to reject his love. The law-keeping elder brother remains outside. The tragedy of the story that Jesus enters, ends with the religious person outside. I'm not coming in I'm not coming in I find and I'm really finishing now I find that religious people are often the furthest away from true religion from true faith it's almost like they've had an inoculation from the real deal they want the father's stuff but not the father's heart the father pleads with us the father comes out and pleads with him. As I said before, the father's feet follow his heart. Scorn in the shame, again, this is the third time in the story, the father humiliates himself before the village. This is the gracious, loving God who comes down with flesh and he comes out to plead with us. Paul says, as if God was making his appeal on our behalf, when we're talking about two unbelievers, God's coming to appeal to us, he's appealing. And the story ends with the with the, the the brother outside. And I I never thought about this until I read Tim Keller. So I don't think, oh, that's clever. But he says the story leaves us yearning for a true older brother, the one who'll mediate. You might have picked that up if you've been around church before. One who stands between the father one who's going to mediate on behalf of the family to restore the son and keep the father's honour. Who's going to act on our father? Who's going to give his stuff? The younger brother's restoration was graciously free to him but came at enormous cost to the elder brother but the elder brother in the story refuses to pay it. The father could not simply forgive the younger son. Someone had to pay. There's a huge debt here. The father could not save him except at the expense of the elder brother. There's no other way. It had to come out of the elder brother's bit. But the sad thing is the religious elder brother say, I am not paying. I'm not paying the price to see prodigal's return. Keller says this. On the cross, in our place, the true older brother the mediator, on our case, paid our debt. There was Jesus stripped naked of his robe so we could be clothed with dignity and a standing we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was cut off, like that ceremony, that broken jar, but it's it's his body that's broken and treated as an outcast so we could be adopted into God's family freely by his grace. There Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice that we might enter the feast and drink the cup of the Father's joy. There was no other way. If you're a wayward, you're welcome. If you're religious, don't stay outside. You're welcome.